0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we introduce No Meat Friday. We're doing 100% banner today, y'all. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, an industry psyop designed to recast the labors of love as pointless drudgery if there isn't an immediate financial reward, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? And let's be clear, there is very much an immediate
1: financial reward to IndieCast. Like, we are totally in the pocket of big Delamitri, um, <laughs> like every now and again, like Rhino Records. Um you know, they're they're like catalog people reach out to us and talk about like some band from like the mid '90s. That hey, could you make like a name drop of Freedy Johnston this week?
0: We're really hoping to move some units. So huh. I mean, I mean, Jimmy Netco, I think, bought you a beach house at this point <laughs> after all the hours references uh, in IndieCast. Yeah, I just want to say, how do you feel right now? Because, like I said, we're we're doing No Meat Fridays. It's the first time we've ever done this. We have no meat in this episode. It's all going to be banter and I think we're doing that because well there is a big release out today. It's the Beyonce record but we didn't get in advance of that so we aren't going to talk about it. We might talk about it next week even though her indie connections it's even more tenuous than a lot of the artists we talk about on this show. Uh, but you know there's a lot of other topics that aren't meat worthy that we want to talk about and we want to get into. So it just seemed like a perfect excuse to Go vegetarian this week. That's right. I'm like, you know, as a dietitian,
1: I'm strictly anti-keto, anti-paleo, anti-Atkins. But like someday you got to go. Sometimes you just got to go to Red Lobster and fill up on the Cheddar Bay Biscuits. You know, like that is that that, that's what we're doing here. If like the thought of going to Outback simply to eat the bread uh, appeals to you because you don't want like a 32 ounce like porterhouse, you can't get a 32 ounce porterhouse. Yeah, this is the episode for you.
0: By the way, I like the Red Lobster and uh, Outback Steakhouse references there. If we don't score an endorsement based on that, then the people at UpRocks, whoever's selling ads, they're they're totally dropping the ball. I mean, we sh- we should have a Red Lobster brings you IndieCast <laughs> thing by next week. I think. Um, yeah, I I like that analogy. I think this episode, you may not be satisfied at the end, but you will be full. Okay, <laughs> so we're not guaranteeing. Actual nutritional value, but you will feel like your stomach is is full of uh, of, of 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 banter. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like we got to begin by talking about a big deal for you. Uh, emo week is was this week over at the Ringer, and you were uh, a big part of that. And uh, it, as you would expect, as you are the governor of emo music writers the like the long tenured governor uh so you got to bring ian cohen in if you're going to talk about emo you know i was looking at the discourse about emo week and tell me if i'm wrong but it seemed largely positive like you you contributed to this list i believe it was the best emo albums of every year from like 85 to now right like wasn't that like the, the big piece you did with uh Ariel Gordon? Yeah,
1: it was the best songs of uh, best each songs. year from Rites of Spring, um, you know, for one up to the current day. And I actually showed it to, like, one of my uh, co-workers. And she's like, oh, you wrote about Igor Stravinsky, Rites of Spring? That's so cool. Like, <laughs> wow! I, I, I swear to God, like, people at my, my co-workers were, like, having an actual conversation about, like, being emo in high school. Like, like unrelated to anything that was happening that day. And I'm just like, I'm in the, I, I am the, they don't know meme right there. It's like, they have no fucking clue. Um, or- yeah, you're.
0: It's like, it's like they're talking about Batman <laughs> and like Bruce Wayne is right there. <laughs> and Bruce Wayne can't say anything. He can't be like, Oh wait, he just has to sit there and take it. Now I, I mean, I did so- see some people popping off about of emo week. And it was mostly people from the middle age punk community who I feel like, that's part of our audience, although maybe we have a tenuous relationship with the middle-aged punk community. I mean, we were talking about middle-aged punks on Facebook recently that might have ruffled some feathers in 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 that uh, community. But I don't know, like, do you feel like people were genuinely supportive? It seems like something like this is just guaranteed to gin up some anger from people i
1: think before we go any further we have to do a little bit of taxonomy about what it means to be a middle-aged punk because in the previous episode we're talking about like former hardcore guys who like get pretty anti-vax and like Live in like Huntington Beach, California is like kind of a hotbed for like MAGA slash like anti-vax alt-right stuff. Like we were talking about that kind of uh, aging punk in the previous episode. This one, the one that like you're referring to, and actually like the only people I saw. Uh, having a negative reaction to emo week or the aging punk who is like kind of stuck in the 1993 Jesus lizard show kind of thing where it's like Steve Al, right like that like Steve Albini has moved on from like what he was doing in the mid 90s but like these people haven't and I just thought it was so funny that um, you know the the very very few negative uh, comments that I received and like I just want to like point out, like, emo week's been fan fucking tastic. A lot of people are super pumped about it. There's been a huge variety of interesting articles. Um, a lot of, uh, I love the playlists uh, that the Ringer published because it covers, you know, not just the obvious stuff, but you know, fifth wave. Um, and the people who got mad about it are like the people who have like defined themselves as being against emo for like the past thirty years. All of a sudden. They, they want to, like, levy their opinion about what real emo is. Like, repeatedly throughout this, my piece is, like, I mentioned the uh, real emo only consists of the DC hardcore scene in 90s Screamo copypasta. Like, these are people who, like, didn't get the joke and are just super mad that, like, Drive Like Jehu, whose drummer, Mark Trombino, produced Bleed American Blink-182 and started an emo-themed donut shop. And like was <laughs> was was like in San Diego during like the white belt era, you know, where screamo was invented. Like, how dare you call them emo? It's it's like, yeah, maybe they weren't like super into that in 1992, but I mean, you 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 got to grandfather them in at this point. Um,
0: well, it's good for the likes. You're gonna get some likes if you do that. If you if you wave the flag for the uh you know anti-Jimmy Eat World yeah. wing of the emo uh you know di- uh, diaspora. Uh I, I guess uh you know there's going to be people who are into that. But yeah, I mean it seems like most people who are into that kind of music they appreciated the celebration of the genre even if they disagreed with particular choices that you guys made.
1: I agree. I mean, I, I it, it's kind of similar to like our conversation about the 1975 a couple weeks ago where like the day where the internet is celebrating the thing that you really like and care about. I'm like thinking, is this what it's like to be like a Beyonce or like a Taylor Swift fan every other week of the year? Where like the internet is like centered around the thing that interests you the most and you have a lot to say about it. Like it makes a pretty convincing case to go full Optimist, doesn't it?
0: Well, I was going to say, you know, because we've talked about this in the past. There's always been this thing in the emo community, I feel like in terms of, you know, talking about the music press that, well, the music press doesn't, doesn't get us. They don't like us. Uh, they don't understand what we're doing. And a lot of those, you know, derive from like, say how pitchfork wrote about emo groups and like the, the aughts and all that kind of thing. But are we officially at the point now where healing has taken place, (laughs) uh, where the emo people feel like, okay, we're getting our props here because you know, you contributed to this thing. Vulture did a big emo thing. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, pitchfork's doing features on the wonder years at this point you know i made a joke on twitter that we have emo week but what about mo week mo (laughs) lowercase m, o e period the the jam band you know uh it's close to emo what about a mo week i mean i feel like mo hasn't gotten their respect yet but do you feel like there's been healing at this point with the emo community in terms of the music press
1: there is some And also, like, I I used and that's a little bit of a dialectical approach for all you therapy heads out there. Um, I do feel as if, like, very rarely does this stuff get, like, celebrated in the moment. Like, Emo Week primarily deals with uh, stuff that's happened in the past. There was a huge feature on My Chemical Romance, the Dashboard Confessional, MTV Unplugged um the history of emo nights and you know i would very much love to see uh that same energy brought to say you know the pool like the new pool kids album that being said i just saw an article about them in vanity fair of all places so i wouldn't say the healing is complete um i think that you know i would love to see the same level of uh you know discourse and intelligence um being brought to uh that music at like in real time, but of course, like when you consider, you know, what the audience for emo is, it's definitely not the same as it is uh, for, say, like Beach House or like Big Thief, where you're going to see like a lot of like substantial writing about that. Uh, but Mo. Yeah, I mean, jam band, like, would you even like it if jam bands were, like, kind of given that sort of treatment? Or is there something kind of nice about, like, having that, like, little secret, that that little secret clubhouse that's separate from, you know, the potential the discourse?
0: I mean, I think, like anyone, you want to see music that you're interested in be, uh, like you said, at least taken seriously to the point where people are doing, like, real thinking about it instead of just making, uh, you know, cheap shot patchouli (laughs) jokes you know that are are super old um i mean i was heartened to see uh like the goose record got reviewed on pitchfork and it actually got like a fairly positive review but the great thing about the jam scene one of the things i love about it is that the bands in that uh, particular corner of the music world they don't have any expectation that they're going to get covered by the mainstream press and that is so ingrained in how people operate in that In that arena, that they don't even complain about it, really, you know, because there's no expectation of it, there's no sense of entitlement with it, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Indie entitlement in terms of the music press, we're going to touch on that topic again as we have in the past on this show. But so, yeah, I don't know. I the the thing I love about the jam scene is that even if the press did cover them, I don't think it would change how the people who are actually in that scene think about it. Cause they don't really care about the press. And I think that's a positive way of looking at this. Yeah, kind of
1: thing. Also with Mo, like we can do an episode where I do an oral history of like the time I saw him. I think I was at a. Yeah. It was, the, it was new year's Eve. Y2K. I saw a Mo show in Philadelphia. It's like, Hey, come, come to the Mo show. We, like we watched a football game that night and it's like, what are you up to?
0: He ain't come to a Mo show. Okay. I guess I'll go to a Mo show. See, you've seen Mo one more time than I have. Then I've never seen. I'm I, I only. I'm not actually like a Mo fan. I just made that joke because Mo is close to emo, and uh, I thought it would be a funny thing to do on Twitter. It's not like I was actually stumping for Mo, but I love the fact that you've seen one more Mo show than me, and I now feel like I have to see two so I can catch up to you and, and surpass you. You've done Paul Feinbaum. I've been to a Mo show. <laughs> like we have done
1: like some real Freaky Friday shit.
0: That's amazing. So I did want to talk about something I wrote this week. I wrote a column about Channel Orange, the Frank Ocean classic record that came out in 2012. That album turned 10 this month. Uh, It was uh, July 10th, I believe, is the anniversary of the release. And I wrote a piece because I read some of the anniversary pieces that were written about that record, and I thought it was really interesting that the... Rolling Stone piece and the stereo gum piece had strikingly similar sentences where the writers in each case said that Channel Orange has arguably been overshadowed by Blonde, the second proper Frank Ocean record. And I say that because Nostalgia Ultra the mix that he put out in 2011, that's that's classified as a mixtape, not as an official album. So Channel Orange is, like, technically the debut, even though it's, like, the second Frank Ocean release. At any rate, it's interesting to me that Channel Orange in the moment was, I think, a better-reviewed album than Blonde, but over time, Blonde has been the record that people point to as being, like, the definitive Frank Ocean record. And, you know, I think Pitchfork said that Blonde is the best record of the 2010s. Yep. And they put Channel Orange at number 10. And um, basically, the theory of my piece is that you can look at those two albums as signifiers of like the two different 2010s the early 2010s versus the late 2010s. And how Channel Orange, I think, in a lot of ways at the time, it signified this Obama era optimism that the progressive gains that were made in that era were intractable. Like you could never roll back, Uh, you know, the idea that we have a first black president that like, you know, gay rights were on the rise at that time. You know, there were all these other signs that it seemed like America was turning the corner. And I think Frank Ocean was like another example of like, Oh, look at this guy, what he's been able to do. We want, we want this guy to succeed. He's made a great record. And he just kind of represents these great changes happening in 2012. And then you have Blonde comes out in 2016, two months, or I guess it's about three months before Trump wow. is elected. At three months? And uh, it was August no of 2016 that, uh, that Blonde came out. And when you look at the writing about that record, it really was retconned as this expression of what it was like to live in the late 2010s, in the Trump era. Like the, uh, the blurb that's written with the pitchfork list calling blonde the best record of the year it it talks about that specifically and it just seems like that's part of the resonance of that record and i wonder if for a lot of people if if channel orange is almost like if if it even seems older than a decade you know ago like that just thinking back to that time i was talking to phil um my boss here at Uproxx and he was saying, you know, when he talks to the younger staffers at Uprocks, they look at Channel Orange as like an oldies <laughs> record. <laughs> and Blonde is like the record that they are more likely to respond to. I'm just curious for your thoughts on this. I mean, I'll just say after revisiting both records recently, I think they're both great, but I think I still lean toward Channel Orange. I just think it's a more dynamic record. It has the bangers. It also has the quiet songs Whereas I think *Blonde* as good as it is, it's much more of a mood piece where it's like on one level throughout the whole record for the most part. So that's where I give the edge to *Channel Orange*. I'm just curious for your thoughts on any of this. Do you have a feeling for one record or the other? What do you think about my theory there? What are your thoughts on this?
1: It makes me wonder, like, whether these same conversations were being had when, like, Prince was making, like, you know, 1999 and like *Purple Rain*. Like, whether there was this constant. Uh, need to uh, fit them into a broader social context or whether you know that stuff had to happen more slowly because there wasn't the internet but yeah I I, it's funny to say that like oh Channel Orange is kind of an oldies record but I do think that it is in some ways more conventional than Blonde it reminds me of the dynamic between uh, Good Kid Mad City and Pimp a Butterfly like I like Good Kid Mad City more, but like when you compare the two, Good Kid Mad City seems like conventional. There are like, you know, there's like 12 songs and they're all songs. And Blonde, on the other hand, I think that does kind of speak more towards, um, you know, a mood piece. Um, it, the songs are, it's it's a bit more erratic because it's filled with like skits and songs where the direction isn't particularly um, discernible and at any given point. Um, and you know, when I listen to blonde now, there are times where like blonde is the only album I really want to listen to. Um, it reminds me sort of, uh, what it felt like to see Nope, uh, the new, uh, Jordan Peele movie last week, where there's just like a ton of really interesting ideas. Um, and sometimes that's really fascinating. And other times it's like frustrating. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, where's the story here? Like, I, do I care about the characters? Um, but I think with, you know, blonde being like a mood piece, um, I don't think I'd relate to it as much if I were not, you know, living in an unfurnished apartment completely isolated in Lexington, Kentucky at that time. Um, you know, that that's that's about as close as I'll ever get to relating to solo. But um I think you make a good point as far as like I think nowadays we have to separate we can't do dec- we can't do decade lists anymore. Um I think especially with the 2010s there it's just so distinct pre two thousand sixteen and post two thousand sixteen that there's almost no relationship between at all and I don't know. Hopefully in the twenty twenties we'll have like a like you know oh early two thousand twenties that was pandemic era but like maybe after we'll move on.
0: Who knows? Um, yeah, we'll have the we'll have the president Ron DeSantis era <laughs> yeah. uh, after twenty twenty four. I feel like that's what we're heading to at this point. You know I. Your point about Channel Orange being a more conventional record, I I agree with that. You know, in my piece I wrote about how when Channel Orange came out, I think people were putting Frank Ocean in this continuum of other artists that were eccentrics but also managed to make like massively popular pop music. You know, people like Sly Stone, Stevie Wonder, Prince, and with Blonde. I think Frank Ocean made the case for starting his own paradigm, Absolutely. like where he's the like where he's the beginning, and people build off of what he's done. And I think we've certainly seen that in the last six years. I mean, that record feels like a touchstone for not just indie music but pop music, you know, which is vibier than ever. You know, mm-hmm. that's a very vibey record. You know, another I think parallel that I would make to Frank Ocean would be Bonnie Vare, where I think the early the the self titled Bonnie Bear record from twenty eleven uh is very different from twenty two a million which came out in twenty sixteen and I think has a similar aesthetic to blonde where it's taking this established sound and just deconstructing it and making it more chaotic and blurrier and druggier mm-hmm. in a lot of ways uh and that feels like another very twenty sixteen type record to me um yeah. So I think there's a parallel there as well. And I think there's a lot of people now who feel like 22 million is the best Bunny Bear record. There's people also who hate that record too. <laughs> but the, the, the polarizing aspect of it, I think, is what... Probably draws people to both of those records.
1: Yeah, these are both records that kind of make me wish I was like a freshman in college in 2016 rather than like what I was actually doing. It makes me think of what it was like to hear a let's say, or like Kid A, which you know, like these things that I guarantee would be formative uh, if I were younger. And you know, we're living in the uh, post-blonde, post-22 A Million era where it's like assume, like, Oh, right. These are classics. These are touchstones. Like these are the things that, um, these are like the true North for I guess whatever you could call what's remaining of indie music from here on out. So, but yeah, I'd say like channel orange is like, it's basically like 1999 or something along those lines. It's like classic, but it's also like in its own way. So, uh, so perfect in a way that it's kind of hard to get inspired by it, you know?
0: Well, and again, just like these micro-generations that take place, right. which you don't really see until after the fact. I mean, I think there was a similar thing in the 90s, too, where you have the early 90s and you have the late 90s. And I'm like an early 90s person, so I, I, I'm i dr- drawn more to like grunge and gangster rap and Britpop. And then there's this other group of people who are, you know, where it's new metal and it's like Puff Daddy and, you know, like that era and boy bands and, and you know, like the the emo stuff that was coming out at that time. Like that's what their, that's what like their 90s is. And it's just fascinating to see how those things take hold. I, I guess, I mean, the 2000s, what would be the divide there? I, I, I'm I trying to think uh, where, I mean, I know where it would be in indie music, you know, you have like the New York stuff you know, the strokes versus like animal collective or something like that would be the divide in indie, but I'm wondering what it would be in like rock or pop music on a broader level. Yeah. two th-
1: the two thousands. I don't know. I mean, I could say like 2007 felt like a pretty clean break, but there wasn't any, I mean, aside, you know, like Obama got elected, but that was like very much towards the end of uh, the end of the decade and more to the point, like by, by that time, like you know, George W. Bush was like extremely unpopular, like the tide had really turned against them. But yeah, I can't, I don't know, maybe that's like a future, uh, all, all banter episode where we discuss like where, yeah. what, what, what the, what the, what the, um, you know, what the difference is between the say that, what is the channel orange of the two thousands and what is the blonde?
0: Yeah. maybe someone can write us a letter if they have a theory on that. I'd like to hear what our listeners have to say about that whole thing. Um, we have to talk about the Joni Mitchell story. Her appearing at Newport Folk Festival in a surprise appearance. She's singing. She was playing a guitar. Uh, she, what was the name of the guitar she was playing? It's a Parker Fly. Which
1: that's it. I mean, just the the contrast between this like godlike, uh, you know, this godlike musician appearing out of the ether. Like, are we ever going to see Joni Mitchell again? And then she comes out with this like extremely mid nineties guitar world advertisement looking guitar. Like people who were like 35 to 45 years old who may not have like listened to a Joni Mitchell album in a decade could see the Parker fly and think like fuck yeah. Like, I'm glad somebody's bringing that back. It's cool that it's Joni Mitchell, though. (laughs) Well,
0: and it's it's so Joni, too, because I think people, you know, the immediate image of Joni Mitchell is as this singer-songwriter, but she's also, you know, like a pretty radical guitar player as well. And, like, uh, my favorite thing, because there were all these cool videos that people shot of her performance, and there's some videos of her, like, playing, like, guitar jams, (laughs) like little guitar solos. Shugle. even more than her, seeing her sing, which was great, but I, I, I really got off on her playing guitar. I thought that was so cool to see. And, like, look, there's so much negativity in the world. I feel like you have to savor just an unequivocal, like, feel-good story like this. I mean, Joni Mitchell, for those who don't know, she had a brain aneurysm in 2015 that uh, affected her speech and movement I, I i believe that there was a time where she could barely speak and, and barely move so the fact that she is now on stage singing and, and and playing music you know this legendary figure i mean it's like the final scene of the biopic type material like if you scripted this they would throw out the script for being implausible you know it's just such a heartwarming comeback story um and I think even if you're not a fan of her music, it was so great to see. So I I, I don't know. I feel like we complain about things here in the banter all the time. But since we're doing an, a no-meat Friday, we have room here to just talk about a nice story.
1: Isn't this like how Bohemian Rhapsody sort of kind of ended? Where it was like they played... Wor- like world aid or whatever that was called like live aid live aid there we go i'm glad thank you for fact checking i have not seen that movie (laughs) but yeah i think it's totally plausible to have this be like the end point um but yeah because like that's how movies actually work. But um, yeah, I think that like, you know, even if you you said, even if people, you're not a fan of Joni Mitchell. I mean, like everyone's got to be a fan of Joni Mitchell. Like or so, like there's got to be something you like for that. Yeah, I don't like to play that whole there's something wrong with you if you don't like this artist uh, game because you see that on Twitter a lot. But yeah, I mean, Joni Mitchell's catalog is so rich and so influential that like you, there's going to be something uh, that you appreciate. Yeah. Even like the even the wilderness period stuff. Because there's definitely a wilderness period.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, she had like a blackface period, which is like (laughs) kind of incredible that uh, she was able to move on from that. I mean, I know that was controversial at the time. But, uh, you know, people have moved on, uh, you know, thankfully for her case for that. But, uh, yeah, you know, we were talking a little bit about Joni Mitchell's status right now. And it's kind of similar to Kate Bush. And I think this was true even before The Stranger Things. Uh, bump happened for her, where I mean I feel like Joni Mitchell at this point um is maybe the most universally praised musician in the world of music criticism, certainly among the most- uh praised like there's no one who's gonna write a bad thing about Joni Mitchell at this point um and I was thinking about like the Rolling Stone best albums of all time list that they put out a few years ago, and Joni Mitchell's blue is number three. Which means it's ranked higher than like any Beatles record or Dylan record or, you know, anyone else. So she's definitely been placed in the canon at a very high level.
1: You know, I don't begrudge anyone who gets like super excited about seeing Joni Mitchell like playing live music in the year twenty twenty after the health scares that she's been through. But because, you know, the the, the content farm always needs new crops, you'll see Um, similar to like Kate Bush, people's talking about like Joni Mitchell being underappreciated. Um, and I can, I can see it. Like if I take a long enough view, I can see it. And it also makes me wonder like, what is the proper level of appreciation that people want to see for Joni Mitchell? Like it, it, I think in these circumstances with like Kate Bush and Joni Mitchell, it's like, until we are oversaturated with like documentaries and books and uh you know movies a la the beatles or bob dylan we're just not going to be satisfied like i mean do we want that it's like do we want them to be do we want that oversaturation like what is the argument here
0: well i think that you know we're still in a moment like where the canon of popular music is being uh reformulated and i think there's an attempt rightfully so to make it more diverse in terms of gender race all the way down the line. And Joni Mitchell to me is, I think in some way she's like a proxy for all uh, like women musicians. And if you're going to redo the Canon, it's like, this is like a big uh, target to go after first that, you know, we want to put Joni Mitchell, we want her to be as praised as Bob Dylan is. Because if you're looking at like the Canon of, classic singer-songwriters, like, she seems like the closest analog to Bob Dylan, you know, coming out of the 60s and being a singer-songwriter. So I think, along with her just making great music, and you're going to praise it anyway, I also think that Joni Mitchell represents an effort to just remake the canon for, like, all women. And, like, maybe you do Joni first, and then you do Kate Bush, and then you kind of go down... To like less prominent, but also great female artists who maybe haven't gotten yeah. Their due I, I, in the past.
1: I, I think that, I think that's plenty fair. Um, and you know, maybe one of these days we're going to see like in the same way that you get like defenders of Bob Dylan's like Christian phase or like Neil Young's like uh, let me get off my record label contract records. You're going to see like uh, Don Juan's daughter uh, being <laughs> reappraised as well. That's it. That's when we really know we'll have reached peak Joni. I will
0: be intrigued to read that piece. <laughs> Whoever re- writes that, uh, uh, I'll definitely uh, want to check it out. Um, so, Ian, we've now reached the part of the episode where we have to make a crucial decision. Because there was a recent controversy in indie rock world that happened, I think, the day that we recorded our last episode. So, like, we're really behind the cycle here. So, I don't know if it's worth talking about this. If It's kind of interesting. But uh, are we going to wade into the whole band camp Dummy versus Wednesday controversy uh, from this month.
1: Uh, we we were way too positive in that Joni Mitchell piece of banter. Like we got to get back in the muck again. I mean, this is like where this is where the trends really get hashed out. And like, what's more, what's more, like no meat, all banter than a uh, three or four day Twitter controversy involving music writers. Like we have to do yes.
0: Yeah. So okay, so just to fill in on the background for those of you who actually have lives and you don't have to worry about such things, uh, there was a a series of articles that appeared on Bandcamp uh, last week, and they were tour diaries written about this band called Dummy, who I believe are they're a West Coast band. L.A. I think. Right, they're from L.A. And a writer for Bandcamp, embedded with Dummy for uh, quite a long period of time, and, and wrote this tour diary about what it was like to be on the road uh, with this band. And by the way, I should say Dummy, they're sort of like this psychedelic rock band. They have some, like, krautrock rock influences. A little bit of Can is in there. Uh, I think record they're... collector music. It's, yeah. it's total
1: record collector music.
0: And uh, I like their records. I, I, I like their music. I like... i'm not a huge fan of dummy but i I like what i've heard um but uh in this story the thing that people got riled up about is that there's a section i think in the second piece and it's like a ten thousand word piece by the way just like a massive profile of this band where they're talking about the band wednesday which is a band that we've talked about on this show they're a band from north carolina i think that they're a really good band you may also know them because mj lenderman is in that band and uh I've talked a lot about his record that came out this year called Boat Songs, which I think is one of the year's best records. And anyway, this band Dummy, they took issue with Wednesday because Wednesday they they did this tweet thread recently where they talked about how expensive it is to tour. And they basically did like an itemized list of like all the things you have to pay for when you're on tour. And they did it in the context of South by Southwest. And and I I believe that the original point was that, you know, we're going to the, the South by Southwest. We're not really getting paid to play any of these shows. And we also have to like spend all this money. Uh, in order to tour. And that tweet thread eventually inspired a Stereogum article where uh, they talked to other bands about touring and how difficult it is. And basically, Dummy, they come out in the story and and they accuse Wednesday of being like this privileged, rich kid band who's complaining about being on the road. Yeah. And contrasting it with their own lifestyle, which is very DIY, very sort of nose to the grindstone, not complaining, just building a scene, you know, one show at a time, doing it the old school way. So sort of like a rich kid versus a working class band type situation is set up in this article. Have I described this accurately, would you say?
1: Yes. And I think we could just point out the obvious irony of, um, the LA record collector band being somehow the DIY knows the grindstone and the Asheville, uh, kind of, gritty alt country band seeing being seen as the rich kids um i think that's a i mean this this whole argument is like pretty rife with contra obvious irony but you laid it out pretty good because um yeah when wednesday um made that article on stereo gum you know a lot of people you know it's like south by southwest is a known ripoff like i interviewed cole from dive uh in 2013 about it and he said more or less the same things and you know it gets into like it's 2022 and we're still making you know arguments about the get in the van lifestyle or the book your own fucking life and um i just yeah i i think you summed it up pretty good in that like on the one hand this is like a tour diary where it was meant to show what it was like to you know, work without PR, work without a booking agent, um, and to you know make some headway in this uh, industry, where it can seem sometimes that everything is run through this filter of PR and so forth. But this, in this, in 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 the process of spilling like two parts ten thousand words, it aired like a decades worth of grudges, um, and that's why we're talking about this article. It's not because you know it, this this piece. Illuminated things uh that we might not have known before. It's that they had some slick stuff to say about a ton of music writers, like a ton of bands, and propped up Dummy as this, like, m- not exactly Fugazi esque paragon of ethics, but something close to it.
0: Yeah, you know, I just want to say at the start that the complaint against. Uh, you know, sort of music or art being taken over by people from privileged backgrounds, like that resonates to some degree with me because, you know, I work in the media and over the last 20 years that I've been in the media, I've seen more and more people from Ivy league schools come into positions that you wouldn't need that kind of education for in the past. Like there's music writers now who went to Harvard and uh, NYU and, and Brown university and all that stuff and nothing against those writers. I, you know, but I, I look at myself, someone who went to like a state school in the middle of the country, and I wonder like would I be able to break in now like if I were, you know, 23 in in 2022 with my background? Like I So that argument I'm sympathetic to. I also, you know, I remember a time when indie bands didn't want to talk about how difficult it was to tour because there was this idea that talking about that kind of thing it made you a careerist that if you are going to go on the road to share your art, that you should be willing to do it just for the sake of it, and not expect to make money from it. I think that's a very classic idea. I remember interviewing musicians in the past who would talk about that, and I obviously, in the reaction to the Wednesday tweet thread and the Stereogum article, there's still that sentiment out there. So I understand that too. I also love rivalries <laughs> and I love feuds. So I'm I'm on. Favor- I don't think shit talking is necessarily bad. You know, I, I find it entertaining, and I appreciate a band willing to be honest about not liking a band. All of that said, <laughs> you know, when I read that Serial Gum article and I saw the tweets from Wednesday, my interpretation of it was that they were trying to educate people, us music fans basically, about how difficult it is to do this. Because I think in the streaming era, there's still people who feel like, well, I don't need to buy a record because I'll just go see the band live and that'll be my way of supporting the band. And while I think listeners know in the abstract how difficult it is to tour, I think it is helpful to have like a list of, ex- of expenses you know, that we can see that encourages us ultimately to be like, well, maybe I should buy a record or I should buy a t-shirt, you know, maybe just buying a ticket isn't enough. Like if I love a band and I want to support them, you know, I should be, I should recognize this, that I'm part of an ecosystem and and I need to support this. And I feel like that's a message that certainly Bandcamp, of all places, <laughs> would support. Like, I feel like that's, like, what their stated mission is. Like, people shop at Bandcamp because they feel like they're getting more money to the artists by buying their music through that platform. Um so, you know, to describe it, and I made an allusion to this earlier, but to describe the Stereogum article, and I want to get this quote right. Uh, where is it? Uh, as some industry psyop designed to recast the labors of love as pointless drudgery if there isn't an immediate financial reward. That just seems like the worst case bad faith <laughs> reading of what Wednesday wrote or what the Stereogum article is. Like, you know, I, I don't really see that. I feel like you're actually on the same side. You know, because you're both bands that are trying to make it in this sort of independent music world. You know, as far as the feud goes, I think I would respect it more if they just went full Liam and Noel Gallagher. And we just like, we don't like this band because we think their music sucks. Or we don't like this band because they're annoying. Or they get more attention than us and we think we deserve the attention that they get. You know, like, in other words, like, own your pettiness. You know, don't dress like you're you're shit-talking in this veneer of, like, altruistic, you know, DIY mandating, you know, like, we're striking out against the 1% of Critical Darlings and big-time music sites. Uh, Because, you know, you're a band being written about on Bandcamp, which is a site I love, by the way, but it is a for profit music retailer owned by a video game company. You know, that is what Bandcamp is. It's not a zine, it's not a DIY, you know, operation being run out of someone's basement. You know, like they are part of the machine. They are literally in the business of selling music. So I don't know. Just have some perspective here, you know, (laughs) and own the pettiness. Talk shit and don't go on the moral high horse when you're doing it, you know, just just slag them off in an honest, direct way. Yeah. I think that would be the best way to go. Yeah,
1: I absolutely agree with it. And, you know, the funny thing is, like, there's just, like, a lot of bands talking privately about, like, what they thought of this article. And, yeah, like, you know what? If you don't like Wednesday or if you, like, you, you don't think that, like, their music deserves to be heard, yeah, talk shit. I mean, now, granted, like, that can be its own sort of messy thing. But as far as, like, kind of interpo- like trying to frame it through this like moral uh this moral code i think that's where the blowback that's where the blowback came because anytime like you do that there are just so many holes you can poke on that argument um because you know like uh dummy eventually they have a pr company they have a booking agent which you know look to be in a band you shouldn't Like, what if you don't like doing your own press? Like, what if you don't like doing your own booking? Like, in so many ways, in so many parts of our lives, we pay people to do the stuff that we don't feel we're particularly good at. Uh, I can't, I'm sure there are plenty of artists out there who think, yeah, self-promotion, not really my thing. I'd rather have someone else take care of it, which is, you know, which is great in a way. And also, I think the one part that we have, I have to take issue with is, um, you know, if we're going to trace back to emo week, um, I remember in 2013 or 14, people who were, you know, naturally predisposed to hating Pitchfork would say they're only covering emo now because of the clicks. Like as if, you know, the world is a beautiful place was like bringing in a ton of money to Pitchfork. Like people
0: let their grudges uh let them. B- that, is the, that is the dumbest thing <laughs> that anyone ever says about this kind of thing that, yeah, like. The websites are covering these bands for the clicks, like an indie band for the clicks. There are no clicks in indie rock, all right? The clicks are in Marvel movies, it's in Stranger Things, it's in writing about huge pop stars. And when you see your favorite indie site cover that stuff, it's because they also want to write about the indie stuff. And if you want to write about the indie stuff, you also have to write sometimes about this hugely popular stuff because the hugely popular clicks pay for the indie rock clicks. That is how this thing works. No one is protecting <laughs> Wednesday because they are some click goldmine for a website. That is the dumbest thing. If you say that, I know immediately you don't know what the hell you're talking about. It, you know, even like a band like Big Thief, you know, they're not generating big time clicks. If you look at the whole of like internet traffic, it's peanuts compared to the stuff that really moves the needle. You know. So the people who write about this stuff, they're doing it because they like it and they care about it. And sometimes, yeah, you got to write about dumb stuff to justify, or not to justify, but to make it possible to do the other things. Because if you just did the indie rock stuff for a lot of places, your lights get shut off. So, you know, again, that's part of being in the machine. We're all in the machine. (laughs) We all live under capitalism. We all sometimes have to do things that maybe aren't the favorite thing to do. But you do it so you can do the things that you love. That is part of being a grown-up in the world that we yeah, live in today. a part
1: of me empathizes with, like, the statements made uh, in this piece because it's, like, a mutant strain of shit, I believe. I was 22, <laughs> like, about how the music writing industry works. But, look, I mean, I, 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 all these conspiracies, like, um, A, people should know better. And, B, it gives, like most music writers way too much credit to think we can construct this like weird sort of multi-level marketing thing as opposed to, Oh, Hey, let's just write about this band because you know, we
0: like it. Um, well, well, that's the other thing too, is that, you know, there's way too much power ascribed to the music <laughs> press, you know, and, and like, I'm a member of the music press. I like to think that if I write about a band, that maybe that'll be helpful to them. But, you know, I have a friend, I think I've talked about this on the show before, I have a good friend who's a program director at a radio station, and occasionally I go to concerts with him. And it's a whole other world when you're with radio people, how they are treated, you know, in these places as opposed to a music writer. Like, you are on the low end of the totem pole as a music critic. You know, know, in terms of, like, what they actually care about, the things that really matter—it's—it's it's radio, it's streaming, it's that kind of stuff. That those are back rooms that you know—it's like the uh, Ma- you know Mulholland <laughs> Drive, like the, the the dudes like in the chairs, you know, like with the fuzzy ears, those guys. That's like that's what happens in those rooms. I don't yeah. even know what's going on there. We're all but anyway. Just in the I don't know. Squid
1: game like that is what music writing is. We are all just like fighting to the death over scraps, and you know, I get that's why these conversations get as heated as they do. But I mean, we, this, we, we can learn from fifth wave emo. Like they'll just like talk shit about modern baseball and title fight because they think they suck. They're not, not because like they think there's like, any, they, they're they like morally compromised in any sort of way. Like, you know, talk shit, but own it. Like be it, if you're going to be a hater, be a hater all the way.
0: Okay. Well, after that, I think we have to end on a positive note here. And talk about a band that we both love who announced their new album this week. We're talking about Wild Pink. So they announced their new record this week. What's it called, Ian?
1: I-L-Y-S-M. It's, uh, you know, they're trying to get that Zoomer uh, demographic with the internet slang. It's uh, I-L-Y-S-M. I Love You So Much is the um, title track, which was put out on Wednesday. Um, so, yeah, they decided to make it an acronym rather than, like, the album title. Um, when I got the album from uh, the band, it included that like phrase, like, Sam and I'm like, wow, that's like a really uh, earnest thing to say to a music writer. It's like, oh, right, that's the album title. Like, John Ross doesn't actually love me so much, as far as I know.
0: Oh, man. So you, you were feeling the love there for a <laughs> second, and then it just got pulled out from under you. Uh, so this record, it comes out October 14th. Like Ian said, this single was released this week, and... You and I both were hyping this record big time. I almost felt like, oh, am I hyping this too much? Because in, in my tweet, I said that Wild Pink, they took a stab at making their Yankee Hotel Foxtrot with this record. And I don't want to delve too much into this because like, I want to save the analysis for when this record comes out. But I just want to explain that when I said this, I, what I meant is that this is a record where I think John really turned the sound of the band inside out and really made this experimental record that also manages to be incredibly emotional. And I mean you you're already calling it the album of the year. So you you're not holding back. I'm holding back a little bit here cuz I want to I, I don't want to like go overboard yet, but you you're calling it album of the year already. Yeah. Um I mean it's
1: uh, you I, I also kind of describe it as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in the sense that it's like still pretty rootsy but it goes in a very experimental Uh, almost maybe even more like a ghost is born sort of ghostly, uh, sort of way, especially because like a ghost is born, it's connected with a serious medical, uh, diagnosis. John Ross got diagnosed with cancer. He's in a kind of a remission phase of that. Um, I also compared it to Foxing's near my God, um, you know, which is, I have to put my twist on it, um, because it's like 12 songs. It's about an hour. Um, it's just, uh, wow. I did not know this band was capable of making something this massive. And I think you make a good point as to, you know, when I fought, when I had all these thoughts in my head and then I put it out there in the world, when the song finally dropped, then it's like, oh my God, am I being one of those annoying people? Like, am I one of those people who are going to turn people off to wild pink because they, they don't like me and they think that I'm going way too overboard on it? um Yeah, but uh, look, I've lived with this album for a while. I think it gets. Uh, I, I mean, we got to talk about the guest list. I mean, it's got Julian Baker. It's got Pete from Antlers. It's got uh, Riley Walker, um Yasmin Williams, uh Rat Boys in there. They're touring with Trace Mountains. This is like IndieCast final boss shit.
0: Yeah, this is like the last waltz of IndyCast right here. You got all the people coming together. For a big project. Yeah, I someone quote tweeted me and said, oh, I rolled my eyes when I saw this tweet. But then they listened to the single and they were like, okay, this actually sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Wild Pink has definitely been one of our mascot bands here at IndieCast. We talk about them a lot. I feel like they've made some inroads over the course of their first three records. Um, this does feel like a potential... Uh, like bellwether type record for them where if this isn't the record that people go gaga for i don't know what it's going to take i mean i think it is like a like a really special record and again we're going to talk about it more as we get closer to the album but um yeah i don't know i if you've heard us talk about this band and you're like ah, i don't know if i should check them out the time to wait is over this is the record you're gonna want to get in on i think it's really great
1: yeah, but we also have to mention that if, like, on October 14th, you'd rather give your attention to the Red Hot Chili Peppers double album, which comes out that day that they just announced, we understand. Isn't that the
0: day that the 1975 comes out, too? We are doing, like,
1: all day. We oh are my doing, God. like, all day IndieCast on October 14th. It is just going to be, like, a Twitch stream. We are going 24 hours. Like, we just got the Funyuns and the Diet Mountain Dew
0: going on. Cannot wait. It's... Cannot wait. <laughs> All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first?
1: All right, so um, the record that I'm super into this week is a band called Chat Pile. The album's called God's Country. And, um, you know, kind of given what we had talked about earlier in this episode, I do have to, like, we made a little bit of a Jesus lizard joke before. And, you know, this kind of sound, this you know, amphetamine reptile, Steve Albini guy complaining about, you know, the state of affairs in the world sound, uh, it never goes away. And it's a little hard for me to get into it sometimes because, and this is just like a point about it being impossible to be objective in music writing, it makes me think about someone who's going to be on the internet talking shit about like turnstile or big thief. It's like when I hear like that sound, when I hear those scraping guitars, I'm thinking like, Oh, this person has a lot of opinions about like uh, pitchfork or whatever, but there's been a real void for this sound. I think since, you know, daughters got canceled um, and pissed jeans kind of went on hiatus or whatever they're doing. Um, and This and this is just like the one of the feel bad hits of the summer, right? Here, there's songs about like why the second song sounds like uh, it sounds like almost like a cool Keith song complaining about like why people like have to live outdoors and push their stuff around in a shopping cart. Um, but it's also like fairly ridiculous as well because it's so over the top. And also, I think I appreciate the fact that from Oklahoma City as opposed to, say, like, New York or L.A. I think that gives them a little bit more credibility. Um, and maybe that's just, like, me projecting, you know, my my Midwestern values onto people. But, yeah, if uh, if you just want, like, the exact opposite of what the Beyoncé album is doing, uh Chappai will get you there.
0: So for my recommendation corner, I want to do a shout-out and I guess sort of an R.I.P. to a really great band called The Raining Sound, This is a band that's been together uh, for about uh, 20 years or so. They recently announced that they're breaking up. It's sort of an interesting dynamic because the main guy in this band, his name is Greg Cartwright, and you might know him. He's a legend of Memphis garage punk bands. He was in a band called the Oblivions uh, back in the 90s. There was also a band called the Compulsive Gamblers that he was in. And then he started this group, The Raining Sound. He was the only, I guess charter member of this band a lot of different people came in and out of the band uh so it's a little odd to say that they broke up i mean he could decide next week that he's going to make another reigning sound record but he said that he's retiring the name and i i just want to say like if you haven't checked out this band uh definitely get into them uh I, you know as i mentioned he kind of came out of that same like memphis garage punk scene that like jay retard came out of he was like a little bit after greg cartwright but with uh, The Raining Sound, he really, I guess, meant more in, I I guess I would call it like greasy Americana, you know, where <laughs> it's not like the typical acoustic type stuff that you hear from that scene. You know, there's a lot of like, you know, gnarly guitars and like great organ parts, but it has that kind of rootsy rock and soul type vibe to it. And he, I think, did that as well as anybody uh, in the last 20 years. There's a record that he put out in 2002 called Time Bomb High School, which I think is totally like an underrated classic. Like, if you're looking for, like, if you wish that Wilco sounded more like The Rolling Stones, like that, that's a record for you. You're really gonna love it. Uh, Raining Sound put out eight albums all together. Their last record was called A Little More Time with The Raining Sound, and that was a cool record because it was the original lineup of the band that came together. It seems like a real kind of full circle moment for the band. But uh, out of all the eight records that they put out, all of them are worth hearing. I would definitely start with Time Bomb High School, then Too Much Guitar in 2004, another really great record. Uh, So yeah, you know, hats off to Greg Cartwright, great musician, great singer-songwriter, Raining Sound, really good band. Uh, And I'm sorry to see him go, but I'm sure Greg Cartwright will be doing something else great very soon.
1: Yeah, call call it call in with your favorite greasy Americana records. I'm dying to explore this one. I'm dying to explore this subgenre more.
0: Yes, it's it it it, it demands to be heard. More greasy Americana. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back next week with our hundred episode. Woo! If you can believe it, and we'll be doing more reviews and news and hashing out trends. We'll see you later. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.